The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, August 10th. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Hillary Johnson. Hillary Johnson is an esteemed journalist and author of the book, Osler's Web. Hillary has written about environmental and medical topics for the last 15 years of her 30-year reporting career. She has explored the introduction of antiretroviral cocktails in AIDS, public health threats posed by the ever-mutating influenza virus, viral causes of multiple sclerosis, the XMRV virus, and most notably, biomedical research gone awry in the case of chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. I quote from Hillary's book, Osler's Web, a surgeon who descended into chronic fatigue syndrome. You catch a cold, and thereafter the quality of your life is indelibly altered. You can't think clearly. Sometimes it's all you can do to read the newspaper. Jet lag without end. You inch along the fog-shrouded precipice of patient care where you once walked with confidence. Myalgias wander about your body with no apparent pattern. Symptoms come and go. What is true today may be partially true tomorrow or totally false next week. You know that sounds flaky, but damn it, it's happening to you. You are exhausted, yet you sleep only two or three hours a night. You were a jogger who ran three miles regularly. Now a walk around the block depletes your stamina. Strenuous exercise precipitates relapses that last weeks. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you, Terry. Good to be here. Hillary, let's start with a couple of definitions. What's the difference between a disease and a syndrome? Uh, Interesting question. Um, in, in theory, or actually in reality, doctors uh, differentiate between those two phrases or terms um, by saying that a disease um, is something for which the cause is actually known. Um, in other words, you know, a cold is a disease because you can, you can identify the rhinovirus that caused it. Um, a syndrome is officially defined as a collection of physical signs and objective—I'm um, sorry—subjective symptoms claimed by the by the patient. Um, so syndromes, uh, you could say, they don't get quite the same respect um, as uh, diseases. However, I, I would just add that um, in reality, um, many there are many. Uh, 
diseases for which the cause is not known, but they are considered to be diseases, and that would include, for instance, MS. Nobody knows the cause of MS, but nobody uh, disputes that it's a disease. All right. And without going too in-depth, what is currently meant by the term chronic fatigue syndrome, and is that a departure from its original definition in the mid-1980s? Um, well, I will try not to go too in-depth. That's a complex question. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome uh, is a name that was applied to a collection of signs and symptoms um, that occur began occurring in people in the uh, early 1980s. Um, the, the name was given to, to the disease by uh, the Centers for Disease Control. Um, uh, they came up with that name uh, essentially with, um, you know, a, a group of uh, scientists and doctors. There were about, you know, maybe 10. Uh, many of them had very little experience in treating or even seeing patients who suffered from this collection of signs and symptoms, shall we say. Um, and they seized upon uh, the word fatigue uh, because patients were um, extremely uh, debilitated. Um, and uh, so they, th this is a, essentially a, a, a name that was given to the disease by the Centers for Disease Control in 1988, um, but uh, doctors who treat patients with this, this problem and patients themselves have never been satisfied with this name. They feel it's completely inadequate um, to describe the actual you know, reality of the disease, not to mention the fact that it's not a medical, it's not a medical nomenclature, um, and in fact, uh, there's very strong evidence that this uh, disease existed uh, possibly as far back as the 1930s um, when uh, cluster outbreaks of it began breaking out. Um, one of the first recorded cluster outbreaks uh, of it occurred in Los Angeles at the county hospital. Um, in, uh, during a polio epidemic, most of the doctors and nurses came down with this with this malady. Um, at that time, they called it atypical poliomyelitis, and uh, eventually, uh, British scientists gave gave the name uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which um, or shortened uh, to, which can be shortened and is shortened to simply ME, and that is the name that's currently um, in use in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and other countries. But uh, unfortunately, the, the name the CDC applied to this disease in 1988 has basically reigned supreme for the last uh, quarter century. Um, and... Uh, in terms, uh, I, I suppose you really wanted me to tell you what the disease is. <laughs> no, uh, that, is that's that all right. right. I think you're doing fine. Okay. Um, I'd like to uh, segue to though the you've told us about the 1930s, and I'd like to go back to the mid 1980s. Uh, the 
the beginning of when this was really coming to the fore, uh, how, when, and where this was developing, being noticed, uh, the, the cluster outbreaks? Um, okay, well, uh, in the um, early 1980s, uh, there were a couple of papers published in, in the medical literature by doctors who had seen, uh, you know, uh, cases in their practice of children and adults who had a, what they called at the time, a chronic mononucleosis-like syndrome. Um, it wasn't mononucleosis, but it, 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 it had those same kind of symptoms that uh, mononucleosis has, where the patient is just suffering from extreme exhaustion and, uh, you know, maybe bedridden, et cetera. Um, uh, these papers appeared in the medical literature, and both of them, in 1983 and then uh, I think a third in 1984. Um, uh, in 1984, there was an outbreak of this uh, mononucleosis-like illness in Lake Tahoe, um, Nevada, actually not in the lake, uh, in a little town called Incline Village next to the lake. Um, but uh, there, and, and that uh, outbreak got a lot of publicity at the time um, by 1985, 86. Uh, the CDC was was uh, kind of reluctantly went out to Incline Village and did a very inadequate um, investigation. I, I think that's widely accepted. Um, so I think it's fair to say that that it's not just my opinion. Um, many many uh, scientists and doctors have rued uh, the fact that the CDC did such a poor evaluation of the Incline village epidemic because there could have been some some uh, good science done there and, and they kind of blew that opportunity. But the, the point I'd like to make is that although there were some uh, instances of well-publicized cluster outbreaks around the middle 80s, the middle 1980s, um, in, in actual fact, this disease was spreading quite rapidly in uh, really all over the country and uh, probably all over the world. Um, and, you know, there were, there were many, many people who were coming down with this disease in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Chicago, San Diego. Uh, you know, just name a, name a city, name a place. There were uh, very large um, numbers of people falling ill with this disease. And I might add, interestingly, uh, this, this epidemic grew really um, in, in in tandem with the AIDS epidemic. Okay, let's transition over to that then. What were the similarities or disparities with AIDS? And we know that back in the early 1980s, uh, AIDS was considered a mysterious illness. Did the backdrop of AIDS hamper or help looking into this new illness that was striking down adolescents, men, and women uh, from many countries? Oh, these are marvelous questions. Um, in terms of, uh, let me take the, the similarities and disparities part of your question first. Um, there were uh, many similarities. And uh, unfortunately, the similarities 
were not really well defined um, for quite a while because there was so much focus uh, at the time on HIV. Um, but uh, similarities and disparities, um, I, I would say there are greatly more similarities than disparities. Um, in 1990, there was a paper published um, by a, a respected HIV immunologist who uh, essentially said that uh, CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, could be certainly fairly called a syndrome of immune dysfunction. And the scientists laid out a new, uh, many, many uh, areas of immune dysfunction that were um, not unlike uh, the immune dysfunction seen in HIV. Um, the other more similarities were that uh, there was, uh, you know, a, there's a well-known AIDS dementia uh, where as the disease goes on, the uh, patient will sometimes become dis disoriented and have encephalopathic-like uh, symptoms. And these, are, uh, these show up on MRI scans as multiple uh, brain lesions, you know, small, very small, but scattered throughout the brain. And uh, these identical uh, findings were made in uh, CFS. In fact, one of the hallmarks of the disease is uh, neurological dysfunction, uh, cognitive impairment, and uh, small brain lesions. And in 1992, a major paper was published um, on CFS from, by a Harvard uh, doctor and researcher who showed that um, these uh, brain lesions were, uh, were in over 80% of patients. Uh, he talked about immune dysfunction and, finally, opportunistic infections, which are also well-known in AIDS. All right. Um, Hillary, can we pick up with this when we come back from break? Absolutely. This is fascinating, and we will pick up with this line of thought when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Hillary Johnson, author of Osler's Web. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with esteemed journalist Hillary Johnson, who is the author of Osler's Web. This book is about 700 pages long, and I must say that this must have been a labor of love. It is so chock full of research and firsthand accounts, so well done. Hillary, before the break, uh, you were telling us about brain lesions. Yes, I, I was going to say that um, the uh, patients of AIDS, the, the, the brains of AIDS patients who are fairly progressed in their disease, of course, we don't see that necessarily as much these days because there's been good therapy for, for AIDS, but in the 80s, uh, the patients of, I mean, the brains of patients with AIDS and CFS were almost indistinguishable in, in the sense that uh, people found these um, small brain lesions in, in the brain and also accompanying uh, cognitive dysfunction, you know, loss of IQ points um, that could be measurable and so on. And um, the third the third aspect of similarity between HIV-AIDS uh, and chronic fatigue syndrome has been opportunistic infections. Remember I said that the disease uh, initially in, in the very early 80s was described as being mononucleosis-like. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the opportunistic infections that occurs in uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is that many, many viruses that would normally be kept in check by the immune system become reactivated in this disease. And that would include the virus Epstein-Barr, which is, uh, among other things, is a herpes virus that causes mononucleosis. And um, there are a number of other herpes viruses, um, including one called herpes virus 6, um, herpes virus 7, um, these uh, viruses are um, reactivated and are, in effect, uh, obviously contributing to the, to the uh, disease burden, as doctors say. Um, so there are, uh, in, in some patients, they've found as many as you know, 30 to 70 uh, reactivated um, infections that normally would not be 
activated in a, in a person with a healthy immune system. So I, I think, you know, these, these three things, the cognitive neurological dysfunction, um, which is very pronounced um, in chronic fatigue syndrome, the opportunistic infections, and uh, the immune dysfunction, um, these, these three things are what uh, HIV AIDS and uh, CFS have in common, very much in common. So, Hillary, I think this would be a good time to explain to our listeners what a retrovirus is and what HTLV is. Um, well, a, a retrovirus, um, retro, well, uh, let's see, <laughs> um, on, just on a scientific level, uh, uh, retroviruses act in, in, in unusual ways compared to regular viruses. Um, they use a, a substance called reverse transcriptase to enter a cell and uh, basically insert their own genetic material into the, the cell itself, into the human cell. And they, in effect, sort of commandeer the cell. Um, I, I'm sure if there's any retrovirologist listening to me right now, they're probably screaming um, <laughs> because I've, I've dumbed this down considerably. But uh, it's, it's, you know, the actual science of this is rather complicated. But the point is, is that once a cell is infected with a retrovirus, it can never be uninfected. Um, infection with retrovirus um, is a permanent state. It can never be cured, at least not so far. Um, it, it can't be eliminated. Um, once the DNA, I'm, I'm sorry, once, once the genetic material from the retrovirus is in, is in a human cell, it's there to stay. Um, retroviruses have been well known. They're widespread in the animal world. And um, scientists have known about retroviral infection in the animal world since really the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the 19th century. Um, but it was only, uh, it, was, it wasn't until, uh, oh, I think it was about 1980 that the first human retrovirus was, was discovered, and that is called HTLV, and that stands for Human uh, T-Cell Lymphoma Leukemia Virus. Um, because uh, the virus obviously infects T cells, which are a component of the immune system. And um, like many retroviruses in the animal world, um, HTLV can cause cancer, uh, immune system cancers and cancer of the cancers of the blood. And uh, it also causes, like many immune, I'm sorry, many retroviruses in the animal world, um, it causes a uh, profound neurological disease, um, somewhat like uh, MS. Um, so that's what HTLV is. And that was the first human retrovirus discovered. HIV, of course, was the second uh, human retrovirus. And that was discovered in 1983-84. All right, so let's go back to the question about the backdrop of AIDS. Did this help or hamper looking into CFS? Well, uh, Terry, that's a great question. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been actually, I, I think it re, it's a question that remains unanswered. Um, I'm not going to claim to be an expert uh, on that uh, in any way. Um, I, I think there are a lot of theories 
and a lot of uh, you know educated theories about about why HIV AIDS um, became the disease that had you know billions of dollars um, focused on it uh, or uh, you know, tuned, turned to the disease over the over the 1980s and 1990s, and even into the uh, the this this the last 10 years, 11 years of this century. Um, you know, um, when I first started covering the the so-called CFS story, um, I was living in Los Angeles and in the and in 1987, I called the uh, epidemiologist for the Los Angeles uh, the Los Angeles Health Department and asked her um, about CFS and about uh, uh, whether the Los Angeles Health Department was was hearing a lot about this disease from doctors and so on. And she said that uh, the that her department was actually overwhelmed with calls about chronic fatigue syndrome from patients and doctors alike. And this is, again, 1987, Los Angeles. Um, she said, unfortunately, um, you know, all our money has been uh, directed at AIDS, and we really can't do anything about this problem because we have no money dedicated for it. Um, and uh, uh, there um, you know, people say, well, gee, um, the thing about AIDS was that people were dying. There were bodies piling up, <laughs> so to speak, I mean, to be crude. Uh, you know, people were, were, were you know, it, it seemed like a, a, a public health emergency and, uh, and so on. But, uh, in fact, um, chronic fatigue syndrome also seems to be a progressive and potentially fatal disease as well. Um, I, I think what one of the things that happened very early on is that, again, uh, I go back to the CDC's decision to call this, to give this a new name, to change the name from myalgic encephalomyelitis to chronic fatigue syndrome in 1988. And... Uh, the name itself implies that this is not a serious problem. It's not anything we need to worry about. Um, after all, you can't catch yuppie burnout. You can't uh, catch fatigue and uh, so on. Um, so that uh, really, at a very early date, chronic fatigue syndrome was, um, you know, made to seem unimportant and not serious. How were the first patients regarded? Were patients thought to be psychotic? Uh, no. Uh, it's interesting. Patients, you know, before, before the CDC got involved with this disease, um, I think that patients were, were taken quite seriously. And I think there, I, I know for a fact, there was a tremendous amount of concern among physicians who were seeing these patients. Um, one of them uh, I mentioned in Osler's web, he was an infectious disease specialist in, in Atlanta. Um, his last name was Du Bois, and uh, he was an HIV doctor, but he also was seeing a tremendous number of people with this new, other new immune system disease, and he actually made a presentation at the Centers for Disease Control um, in uh, 
the early 1980s. Uh, it was well attended by CDC scientists, and he proposed to them that they might start thinking about this other disease and that, in fact, it might be some kind of subclass of HIV or some related disease, um, but that, you know, his warning was, look, you know, we have, an, we have not just one uh, epidemic or outbreak of an immune system, immune-destroying disease. We may be looking actually at two different, um, at, at two new diseases of immune dysfunction. And, uh, uh, but when the CDC uh, sort of, you know, got involved in this disease, that's when things really started to go south. Uh, and uh, the CDC began uh, publishing a series of papers that uh, suggested that this was a, uh, a disease that uh, was mysterious, was difficult to diagnose, um, that uh, it, it might just be depression, they weren't sure. Um, they, you know, their papers were primarily focused on the psychiatric status of people who were ill with this disease rather than the, uh, rather than looking at the biological abnormalities. All right. And so. Well, you know, I, I'd like to read before we break uh, here in a moment this passage of yours on page 633 that I love, and it says, for years, federal health agencies had fostered a view that CFS was grossly overdiagnosed and that most cases were probably better known chronic diseases that doctors had failed to recognize, such as lupus, multiple sclerosis, or most popularly, garden variety depression. Yet in focusing on what else CFS might be, the government stubbornly ignored mounting evidence for what it was. And with that, I'd like to go to break, and we'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. 
Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with the author of Ursula's Web, Hillary Johnson, and I'm going to start this segment by reading another quote from Dr. Thomas English, who is on page 461 of your book, Hillary, the same surgeon whom I quoted at the top of this hour. You, too, might wonder about some of your symptoms had you not talked to other patients with similar experiences or talked with physicians who have seen hundreds of similar cases. With experience, a pattern emerges. The bizarre and implausible become commonplace and credible. And he quoted clinician and medical educator Sir William Osler. To comprehend this illness, one must heed Osler's advice to study the patient firsthand. Learning medicine without books is like going to sea without charts. Learning medicine without patients is like not going to sea at all. I have talked with scores of fellow patients who went to our profession for help, English continued, but who came away humiliated, angry, and afraid. Their bodies told them they were physically ill. But the psycho-speculation of their physicians was only frightening and infuriating, not reassuring. Hillary, do you remember that interview? I do. I do very well. This is a, a, a very, very brilliant surgeon. Um, who uh, lived in North Carolina and became completely disabled by this disease. And I, I remember he, he told me during an interview, that, that he said there, there are days when I would, I would just kill to be able to go in and, and remove an appendix. <laughs> you know, he missed his work so much. Um, it, it was just de- devastating to him uh, to be unable to continue to practice medicine. Um, but he said he would he would never uh, you know risk uh, someone's life by uh, attempting to perform surgery. Um, but this is uh, you know this is completely typical of this disease. It is a massively severe disease. It's really unlike almost anything um, you you can think of. Um, you know there have been numerous studies have been done to determine the, the degree of disability and morbidity in this disease. And uh, many studies have shown that there, there, there are almost, it is probably the most disabling uh, illness that is known. And uh, CFS patients are sicker than uh, most patients with heart failure. Um, they really sort of um, become, uh, they're, they're sort of like patients in, you know, end-stage heart failure, uh, patients with AIDS in the last, you know, weeks of life. 
Um, it's a very, very severe disease. The, the morbidity is untold. And of course, I, as I have emphasized already now, uh, the, the government's name for this disease um, it, it completely uh, diminishes the uh, severity. And, uh, you know, I, I have always maintained that, that this disease, that the name chronic fatigue syndrome was in fact a political construct um, that the government essentially uh, created uh, to allay any kind of public fear or panic about this this outbreak, and the sad result of that has been that uh, there are at least a million Americans currently who suffer from this disease. Um, it's continuing to spread. There are new cases all the time, and. Uh, um, you know, these people, like, like the surgeon that you quoted, um, have been, in effect, plucked out of life, and they can no longer, you know, function in the workplace. Uh, they can barely function within their families. Um, they, they, uh, you know, the, the, the suffering uh, is just untold, uh, you know. Uh, and then, of course, layer onto that the fact that, uh, patients with this disease are often considered the butt of jokes, actually. <laughs> um, just last night I, I saw a, a special on HBO about salsa in New York, and there was a, there was a, a, a person in the salsa class with chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, the documentary itself seemed to be mocking this patient because he, you know, had so little energy and was, he was clearly trying so hard um, but, you know, he simply could not keep up. And uh, the teacher was making comments, you know, sort of winking at the camera, making comments to indicate that there was, that there was something psych psychologically off about this guy. When, in fact, I, I saw him as kind of a hero, you know, that he was at least trying as hard as he could to do something uh, to, to feel as if he was participating in, in, in the world around him. That's, that's uh, horrible. I see, I see so many similarities with autism, Hillary. The, the, the physiological manifestations and debilitation are not taken seriously, and then someone suggests it's a psych thing and wants to put a behavior plan in place. Um, it, it uh, debilitates the individual, it breaks up families, it sacrifices careers, and I absolutely agree with you about the politics of definition. I think that when they don't understand us, they minimize us. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I agree. I think there are just profound uh, parallels between chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, uh, the autism epidemic. Um, and you know it's it's absolutely tragic the way uh, parents of children with autism have been forced to you know really take on the uh, the problem themselves and and have been kind of left left uh, left to deal with this uh, momentous uh, medical problem that their children have um, without really much support. Uh, or understanding on the part of the medical community. It's, it's a great tragedy and it's an outrage. Yeah, Hillary, you mentioned some cities earlier where there were high populations of uh, uh, individuals who were, uh, had what we're calling CSF, chronic fatigue syndrome, 
you mentioned cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, and I, I couldn't help but think, you know, that sounds like uh, population centers where AIDS uh, cases were being diagnosed as well. Why do you think these urban centers were having um, a noticeable prevalence of these maladies? Well, uh, Terry, I, I think that that's, it's, uh, I, I think that generally um, what's going on or what has been going on, and I say this because I've talked to scientists about this, that um, in, in all large urban centers, um, there, the conditions for the spread of infectious disease um, are probably better than they are in rural America. Um, you know, in, if you think of it in New York City, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, et cetera, these are, uh, especially uh, New York, um, these are cities where people live in very, very close contact with one another. Um, you know, people kind of live literally on top of each other. There's a tremendous, tremendous number of people living in, in close, in, in relatively close quarters. And uh, I, 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 I do know that um, a scientist who's, who's very prominent uh, currently for having identified a, 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 a new retrovirus in, in chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, you know, has speculated that the that the rate of infection with this particular retrovirus is probably significantly higher in large major urban centers such as New York, London, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, et cetera, than it is in rural America. Is and I I assume that you're talking about XMRV and. Yes. When, when I, your, your book stopped in the mid-1990s, and so I wanted to look in Wikipedia to see if any enlightenment of the mainstream medical community had glittered down since your book was published, and it had not. So I would like to talk about uh, what, to me, is one of the very most exciting advancements in the theories surrounding CFS, like you just uh, mentioned, and that is the XMRV virus. Yes, um, the uh, in October of of two thousand nine, um, an incredibly Im important paper was published um, in the journal Science, um, and this paper, in effect, um, found a very very significant association between infection with a new retrovirus that was discovered in 2005, actually, um, called XMRV. Uh, this virus, the association was uh, between XMRV and p patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, out of 101 patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, 67% uh, were positive with the retrovirus XMRV. Um, and this paper was authored, the lead author was a scientist named uh, Judy Mikovits 
uh, Dr. Mikevitz was formerly at the National Cancer Institute for over 20 years. She is a retrovirologist and um, has uh, her involvement at the National Cancer Institute was mostly with um, HIV uh, virology. Um, but uh, in the year 2006, she was invited to become the medical director of the Whittemore Peterson, I'm sorry, the scientific director of uh, a new institute uh, in Reno, Nevada called the Whittemore Peterson Institute for Neuroimmune Diseases. And uh, Dr. Mikevitz was introduced to the disease chronic fatigue syndrome, and the more she learned about it, uh, the more it seemed to her that it probably had a retroviral uh, basis. And uh, she went to work with a small team of uh, investigators in Reno and also drew in a, a collaborative group from the Cleveland Clinic and the National Cancer Institute. And ultimately, they were able to isolate uh, XMRV in, as I said, two-thirds of patients with, with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. They were able to prove that it um, could be transmitted. Uh, in other words, that it was infectious. Um, they did this by taking blood from XMRV-infected uh, patients and adding that blood to uh, healthy blood, uninfected blood, and uh, they discovered that they could create new XMRV infections in, in blood. They found it in the saliva of um, patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, suggesting uh, that XMRV may be casually transmitted. In other words, it doesn't require blood-to-blood -blood transmission, um, which could explain why there have been a, a number of cluster outbreaks in, among school children. Um, and among children in general, because uh, this is clearly not a, well, it, it doesn't appear to be a disease that is spread exclusively, um, you know, among adults. It's uh, prevalent in children as well. Right. But Can we pick up with transmission when we come back from break? Absolutely. Great. Okay, we'll be right back with Hillary Johnson, author of Osler's Web, when we come back from break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Thank you. 